Hey, uh, got a few administrative things here. First of all, I am wired for the first time. I don't mean by caffeine, okay? <laughs> so this is an experiment. We're going to do the best that we can here. Uh, yeah, we're going to do the best that we can. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, now that I see it, I've got to log in again. Um, yeah, another thing is I have um, tried as hard as I could to cut and chop and all that, but uh, I think I'm going to be going a little long today. I, I'm sorry about that. Um, also, this past week, uh, Steve Green and I were blessed to attend a conference uh, and the, the title of the conference was The Gospel, Homosexuality, and the Future of Marriage. Uh, and we hope to be sharing some things with the leaders first and then with all of you about that particular conference and some of the things that we learned. It was, I would say, eye-opening for me. I know, I'm sure for, for Steve it was as well. Uh, and... Uh, uh, given what we're talking about today, it, it has affected somewhat uh, some of the things I'm going to say today. Um, speaking of which, this is a somewhat sensitive topic, if you've looked at your handout. Uh, and I, I think, to be honest, this may engender some questions at home with young ones. And frankly, I'm not apologizing a bit. Okay. Because given where we are in the culture and the words of Jesus himself and what we're going to be facing in the culture, you've got to be talking about this. You need to be having these conversations because if you don't, your kids are going to hear it from somebody else. Okay? And we're going to continue today in our study of the Sermon on the Mount with, starting in Matthew 5, starting at verse 27, with this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, Cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Okay? Jesus here is referring to the seventh commandment given to Moses. And today, it would be somewhat of an understatement to say that we've gone way over here. I've got to watch the wires. Way over here in our understanding of this. Not only is adultery accepted, but it's almost kind of expected anymore, isn't it? Uh, in fact, just to talk about this subject could bring mocking charges of fire and brimstone because people just don't like to talk about these issues anymore. But the fact that we, the culture has gone way over there does not mean that the scribes and Pharisees got it right because in correcting the view of the scribes and Pharisees as they interpreted the law, Jesus goes way over there in explaining the true meaning. The scribes and Pharisees had interpreted the commandment just like they did the sixth commandment about murder. And they concluded that what they wanted to do was to limit their obligation under the law. So they rationalized that as long as one did not commit the actual act of adultery they could claim obedience to the law. With this issue, though, they have even less excuse than they did when they missed the problem of anger towards another being murder in the heart. Why? Because they drew a line, as legalists do, and they separated the seventh commandment from the tenth commandment, which I think you have on your, your handout there which says you shall not covet your neighbor's house and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or your male servant or, excuse me, or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So for us to understand here, for us to limit the seventh commandment to a married man lusting after a woman but not a woman after a man or not lust between unmarried persons, is the same kind of line-drawing legalism practiced by the scribes and Pharisees. 
Because Jesus sweeps in all immorality here. Any kind of sexual act or lust outside of marriage is what Jesus is addressing here. And in verses 29 and 30, he discloses the process to obtain purity. We're going to talk about that later. Jesus explains that the source of the problem is not that we're created as sexual beings, but rather that people have a sin nature, all of us, and we're tempted and we sometimes give in to temptation. The eye is the most common gate through which temptation seeps in. Relationship between the eye gate and the heart is significant. To look lustfully is to commit adultery in the heart. So heart adultery starts with eye adultery. Job gets it right in chapter 31. He said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze upon a virgin? If my step has turned from the way or my heart, my heart followed my eyes, or if any spot has stuck to my hands, let me sow and another eat, and let my crops be uprooted. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I've lurked at my neighbor's door, and then he says, basically, if I have lusted after another, I deserve to lose my wife to another man. And believe me, that's a polite paraphrase. For that would be a lustful crime. Moreover, it would be an, an iniquity punishable by judges. For it would be fire that consumes to destruction, and it would uproot all my increase. In other words, all that I've accomplished, all that I've ever stood for, gone if I lust. Job, uh, as far as we know, did not fall into that temptation because he controlled his heart by controlling his eyes. Now, heart adultery, what really is that? Today, our word for it is fantasy, as if it was created by Disney. Uh, This is why porn, whether old-school magazines or high-tech streaming videos, which is 90% of all the porn today, is so prevalent. It feeds the addiction of sexual fantasy. You know, it used to be that sexual sin required clear risk with real people, and the consequences were much more apparent. You know, you risk being discovered, the shame, the loss of respect, sexually transmitted diseases. There was accountability there, real responsibility. Now, in the complete privacy of your home, anytime, anywhere, and without any record, just erase the history. What are the consequences? Well, we often see porn as a precursor to violent sexual crimes, But now there is another phenomenon that I had no idea about. Because porn is so easy and accessible and free from responsibility and relationship hassles, young men are losing their interest in real women. There are now studies that say, that have found that up to 25% of certain populations have no interest in real women. It's not that they're homosexual. It's just that their partners are two-dimensional. Okay? You ever heard of the thing called ED? It is now striking the young. That's the consequence of getting into this stuff. Parents, when I was parenting teens starting in the late 80s, well, I still am, uh, you know, the primary means of maintaining purity was filtering, okay? And, you know, it felt like whack-a-mole, you know, first it was the movies and the the TV and and then uh, the the, the internet and then texting and then email and and now, you know, instant messaging and, and all these things, you know, it is impossible. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't filter because on the PCs, you know, if you push the wrong button, you don't have a filter, the the vilest stuff can pop up right in front of you. So it's still important, but it's not going to stop, you know, your 14-year-old with raging hormones when you give him a smartphone. 
Uh, and taking away the phone's not going to stop it either. Either there are too many windows to evil to stop what we're talking about here. Uh, today, parents have to do more than filter. They've got to train. They've got to interpret the culture. Again, like we talked about, you've got to be talking. We've got to be talking to the kids. What is all this stuff about? And hopefully return them back to the direction of the purity that God wants for each one of us. <clears throat> Guys, do you really want to be a slave to anything other than Jesus? If not, frankly, we've got to man up and take responsibility for our thought life, which starts with exercising self-control with our eyes, both in public and in private. Take Job's advice. Beyond that, perhaps we should put down our smartphones, our TV remotes, our Xboxes, and get serious about being the man, the husband, and the father God has called us to be. Gals, yeah, men are responsible for their own eyes. But let me ask, do women have a corresponding responsibility here? If you want your husband or your future husband to be attracted to and love you more for your godly spirit and your character, that which does not fade, then take the advice of Peter. He said that your adornment should not be merely external, braiding of hair, wearing of jewelry, putting on of dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but it's worth saying. Ladies, there's nothing wrong with looking nice, okay? But you know the difference between being attractive and being seductive. And believe me, men know it as well. Our sons and daughters should not just hear these cautions, but see godly examples in the lives of their parents and other adults within the body. Because for some, even perhaps many, the process goes on from there, from mere glances to fantasy to actual deeds of immorality. And those glances, fantasies, and deeds are the seeds of destruction for your future marriage, your happiness, and the stability of not just your life, but the life of your children and their children. It is generational. I had such a legacy of divorce in my family that I had to build hedges in my life. Okay. Another key point, God invented sex. And frankly, I'm happy he did, okay? He made sexual intimacy not the only, but an important, significant part of that special bond to hold a man and a woman together in marriage for life. Sex within marriage brings the security that we need to hold it together. It is a beautiful gift from God. If you don't believe me, just ask Brent and Misty Scott. <laughs> I'm just saying that because they facilitate the series on Song of Solomon, okay? <laughs> and in the Song of Songs, we see the uninhibited delight of the bride and groom as lovers. This beautiful picture of marital intimacy is the lifelong rich feast that is passed up by the world that can't wait to gulp down a McDonald's relationship, which is quicker and cheaper. There is a high cost to marriage. However, you get what you pay for. Speaking to the young here, premarital sex is like throwing a lighted match on a dry forest floor. It's going to spread everywhere. 
People who have sex outside of marriage tend to have it with people who have sex outside of marriage. Okay? You have no idea what you're getting. The Center for Disease Control reported that two, as of two years ago, 110 million people in America had STDs. And we're adding on 20 million new infections every single year. That means that as of now, that's about 40% of the folks who are out there. Okay? Uh, let me ask you this. Let's say it's the hottest day of the summer. And so you decide, I'm going to go to the pool and, and cool off. And you go up there, and you go up to the, to the edge, and you curl your toes over the edge, and you're about to jump in. And then somebody says to you, oh, by the way, 40% of the people in the pool have Ebola. How many of you are jumping? You get it, kids? That's what you're talking about. Those are your chances. If you're going to think about marrying somebody, it's almost to the point where we need to do background checks. You know, you may need to send each other to the doctor just to get checked. And I hate to say that, but that's the world we live in, unless you're very, very careful. And that's just the physical side. There are emotional and spiritual costs to premarital sex. In Proverbs 31, the guys get a picture of the woman we should all be looking for. She is an excellent wife, and who can find her? She's so rare, but her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Now, to be fair, there could be two interpretations of this verse. One would be that she does him good all the days of her life after the wedding, right? So, up until the wedding, she's free to do evil and sleep around and do whatever she wants, as long as she's faithful after the wedding, right? The other one would be that all means all, even before she knew him. Guys, which one do you want? Now, lest you think this just applies to women, I think that interpretation would be subject to that venerable doctrine of, oh, come on. If you want her to save herself for you, I think you'd better do the same. You both need to know who and what you're joining together in marriage. Marriage is a lot like a fire in a fireplace. It can start out warm and cozy, and then it can get really hot. And then you've got that, that nice afterglow. And it's all okay. Like Mike says, it's all good. However, adultery is like one of those embers popping out of the fire over the screen and setting the couch on fire. And then it goes on from there. And then sometimes when the mortar degenerates and falls out and you develop cracks in the fireplace, the flames can lick through and catch the wood structure around it, just like a secret affair. The end is the same. Once we go outside the fireplace of marriage, sex becomes an inferno that consumes us and all the others around. And the seventh commandment, was given to protect a sacred institution without which we can expect untold problems. Just as the brick fireplace of marriage is torn down within the culture and within the church, cause and effect will run its course, and there will be consequences. But the point of the Tenth Commandment, in accordance with Jesus, is that coveting and lust is sin and leads down the same path. Paul finally got this revelation when he read the whole law. Romans 7 tells us that we serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The scribes and Pharisees said, just obey the law, just don't commit adultery. But Paul said, I would not have come to know the sin except through the law. 
I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Okay? Paul here says that he was thinking previously in terms of action until he realized that the law itself said, don't lust. When he understood the meaning of lust, he understood that God does not stop with action, but stresses the importance of the heart. The scribes and Pharisees had applied a mechanical concept of obedience and completely missed the issue of the heart. There's another issue here that I think is fundamental. In the, uh, the Passion of the Christ, when the, when the Jews finally deliver Christ to Pilate for his final trial, he's wondering what to do with this guy, and he looks at him and says, do you really claim to be a king? And Jesus' response was, I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. And then Pilate asked a profound question. What is truth? A question that's being asked today. I say that because I've read reports that seminaries, and I suspect it's those whose enrollment is declining, are now expanding their curriculum to include instructions in all faiths, or at least the major ones. Why? Well, think about it. They want their students to be more well-rounded and better able to minister to people of all faiths. And in a tight job market, you'd like to get, get on as a chaplain with uh, some large institution, and it only makes sense. But it does require a student to accept and hold beliefs that are inconsistent. Okay? There's a little problem with that. It's called the law of non-contradiction. Okay? You can't believe two things that, are, that can't be true at the same time. It's called logic. Uh, unless you adopt the postmodern view that there really is no such thing as absolute truth or even a reality. Another point here uh, that I've read about recently is that the Catholic Church has recently uh, in, been involved in a heated debate uh, which resulted in the rejection of a proposal to welcome in gay relationships. The Boston-based uh, organization Dignity USA said in a statement, unfortunately today, Doctrine won out over pastoral need. It is disappointing that those who recognize the need for a more inclusive church were defeated. However, they are all very hopeful about the future of the Catholic Church and the discussions that will take place. If we allow ourselves to float adrift in the sea of worldly culture, we go with the current. It takes an anchor to hold any concept of truth in place. And the only anchor we have left now that the law is gone is the Word of God, which is really only the only true anchor. Now, I think we're, we can be sure that the Catholics have not heard the end of this. Several Protestant groups have already caved on this issue. The chain of the anchor is subtly severed below the surface when groups say that it's still there. We still hold to the Bible, but they ignore the clear teaching of the Word on any particular subject. So, I want to move now to consider, if we're going to understand this, the great exchange. Uh, there was a time in history, or throughout history, preachers have decried the decline of culture. However, we are reminded that there is nothing new under the sun. Okay, I put this up here because it was a little bit too long for your, your, uh, your sheet there. Uh, Paul says, starting in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation, power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, 
the, the righteous shall live by faith. Notice, it's the gospel, not politicians, that is the power of God to salvation. The righteousness of Jesus Christ, perfect righteousness, perfect justice, perfect holiness, and that righteousness is imputed to us. Moving on. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in uprightness. Okay? It said the wrath of God is revealed, and it's revealed in the gospel. The unrighteous suppress the truth. All ungodliness, all ungodliness is indicted here. This is not just about others. It includes us. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, the creation, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts, heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in their lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. So they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged their natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, we, certainly I, have often read this passage and assumed that it refers to the world, the heathen, the sodomites. And yes, it does. But wait. Preachers often point at this passage and call for an awakening that America has to wake up because it's about to go over the cliff if we don't turn around. The problem is, it already has in Genesis 3. It's not that it could happen, it already did. It's called the fall. That was the exchange of the truth of God for a lie. Okay? Paul then gives us a laundry list that goes a bit beyond sodomy. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Anybody recognize anything there? Uh, Could it be that there is something in that list that might fit each one of us? Paul wasn't done, however. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And the point I want to get to here is that when he says those that practice such things He wasn't just talking about the folks who exchanged the natural for the unnatural in verses 27 and 28. He was referring to all of the above. And that includes you and me. 
Romans 1 points to the fallenness of all humanity. It did not start with gay marriage. Now, there were precursors, okay? The 60s and the sexual revolution, which led to the demand and the right to contraception, which legally led to the right to abort, which was accompanied by acceptance of no-fault divorce, which led to cohabitation, which now has led to young people being the generation of hookups, which, if I understand correctly, is relationship solely for the purpose of sex. All the while, the church has remained relatively silent. You know, by the time that sex, uh, same-sex marriage came around, the damage was done. It did not even start with the 60s, but rather it started in Genesis 3, in the fall. Today, this is clearly not a single issue. It involves all sin with a culture at war with God. So, where are we now and what do we do? Christians, including myself, have far too long abdicated our responsibility to be salt and to carry out the Great Commission in favor of counting on politics and politicians to sustain our worldview. In fact, at least in the eyes of the general public and probably in, mor- in, in reality, we are no longer the moral majority. But the exciting thing is that God has now put us in a situation where we must rely upon him and his word, and we must learn how to effectively engage a world that either ignores or is hostile to his word. There are three ways, I believe, to influence the culture. One legitimate way, albeit the least effective, is through man's law. It's least effective because law by its nature forces people to conduct themselves by a standard. And in that sense, it is true that you cannot legislate morality. On the other hand, someone's worldview will always win out in making and enforcing and interpreting law. In this sense, man always legislates somebody's morality, some view of right and wrong. That's the nature, the very essence of law. While it's the least effective, while we should never make the mistake of again substituting political activism for the gospel, it is still our duty as Christians to be salt. What does salt do? It preserves. What are we trying to preserve? We're trying to preserve our culture as much as we can so we have as much of an opportunity to witness to others as long as we possibly can. One one issue is how do we best reflect God's best in law within our culture. And the only way to do that is to become informed and engage in the process. In short, instead of sticking our heads in the sand, I am suggesting that each adult in this room has a responsibility to get out on Tuesday and vote as a minimum. Now, I do not believe it is my place to tell you how to vote. However, I can say that when it comes to moral issues that we face today, each of us will either support or undermine a worldview, regardless of what we do on Tuesday. If we sit at home and do nothing, we acquiesce or we consent to evil and immorality because we don't do what we can. If we vote without knowing who to vote for, well, we got about a 50-50 chance of getting it right. If we become informed, we do what we can to further God's, uh, God's plan here on earth as best we can. There are no perfect candidates And while I do not agree with anybody on all the issues, I have decided to vote for the better candidates. I cannot vote for anyone who, as as sincere as they may be, reflects a worldview that's largely opposed to God's law. I do not believe getting the right people in office will save us from the consequences of the culture, but I am confident that not voting or voting for the wrong people who do not value God's truth will speed up our our degeneration. So... Please, don't wake up on Tuesday and and realize, I don't know where to vote, because you likely won't. Or worse, wake up on Wednesday and say, oh yeah, I can't set something to voting, I forgot, shucks.
Don't be that person. There are some, a couple of high-profile races here in Kansas, and therefore, speaking for myself, I'm going to exercise my First Amendment rights right now and state that I'm voting for Sam Brownback for governor and Pat Roberts for U.S. Senate. You think for yourself. You do what you think is right. That's what I'm going to do. The second way that we influence culture is through the public discourse. Okay? So I encourage you as ambassadors of Christ to participate in helping others, including unbelievers, understand that God's ways work out better for all of us. Letters to the editors, uh, public debates and conversations are a few of the ways that we can spread God's truth, or at least the concepts of God's truth to other people. Remember, though, that the one quality we must always maintain is speaking the truth in love. What Christians of necessity are now rediscovering is that the best way to influence the culture is to sow the seeds of the gospel among the lost. Change. We've heard that before, haven't we? Change. One heart at a time. In other words, evangelism. And that leads us to the question, is Jesus my friend? Which includes the question, well, what is evangelism? Is it just telling somebody that Christianity is a better, a kinder, or gentler way of life? To, to be truly effective, we've got to read our Bibles so that we can explain what it really means to know Christ as the risen Savior. Earlier, earlier we mentioned that doctrine is viewed as the great obstacle to open-mindedness by some. Now, I realize when somebody makes a decision for Christ, they may not be thinking of specific doctrines, okay? It takes a little bit more maturity to understand those things. However, those who are explaining the gospel need to understand certain doctrines that we, have, that we understand are part and parcel of the Word of God if we're going to effectively communicate the gospel. The doctrine of sin is really not very popular today. It's often avoided, if not denied. People don't like it. But when you teach that sin, when you don't teach that sin separates from God, the Bible becomes meaningless because sin is a central theme of the Old and New Testaments. Most of our problems and failures within the culture and within the church derive from a lack of understanding of this doctrine. Without understanding sin, we cannot fully comprehend our need for salvation. Why did Jesus have to leave the comfort of his father's side and come down for an earthly existence? Why did he have to tell his disciples not to defend him? Why did he have to die on the cross? Only because of sin. You know, man's exhortations to live a better life failed. You know, before Christ, the Greek philosophers you know, they taught about how to live, but information and knowledge in and of itself was not enough. On the individual level, the problem is that from the fall, sin has been in the heart of man. Therefore, the only way to understand salvation is to understand sin and God's perfect justice. That justice requires a payment for sin, not just any payment, but a payment of a perfect, a blameless, a spotless sacrifice for the sin of the world. Certainly God would not put his only son on the cross to suffer and die, except for the problem of sin. The New Testament has a doctrine that we call regeneration that says that all who seek salvation must be born again, given a new nature and a new heart. But if we don't have a grasp on the doctrine of sin, regeneration is meaningless. The doctrine of sin is essential to, ev to evangelism. Saying Jesus is your friend may very well start a conversation. But think about it. Do friendships ever become thin or stale or uncomfortable? Accepting Christ as another friend is different than accepting him as a savior. If the gospel is not presented with the reality of sin in their lives, the righteousness and justice of God, and their need for a Savior to pay for that sin, friendship will wear thin when any ridicule, trials, or persecution comes. Now, hear what I'm not saying. 
I'm not saying that a real decision for Christ can be reversed or lost. At the same time, we all know the stories of kids who walk away. Barna reports that up to 70% of kids in evangelical churches, when they go to college, fall away from the church and their faith. Now, I can't judge whether these people will come back to their faith, maybe when they get married, or even if they were ever Christians in the first place. That is not my call. Please don't hear me saying that so-and-so has walked away and is now lost. The point is that it happens at an alarmingly high rate. I prefer to focus on this end at solidifying the faith of our young people. That's why Christy and I have engaged in, engaged in facilitating an apologetics and an evangelism course. We want to provide an anchor for the kids in the rough seas of the world. We want to teach them that, that loving others, not as a means in itself, a means to an end, but rather because they are worthy as being created in the image of God is vital. Then when we learn how to befriend and love others, we want to help them understand that Jesus is a friend, but he's not an ordinary friend. He's a friend of sinners, and it is that sin that separates us from God and makes Jesus an essential friend if we wish to spend eternity in heaven rather than hell. As sinners, we are spiritual beggars, and beggars cannot be choosers. We must come to Jesus on his terms, not our own. So the gospel has got to include recognition of our position and our desperate need for Christ as Savior. There's another component that's no longer popular to mention, and it's called the doctrine of hell. As if hell is a place made up to scare us into being good. But if you don't believe hell is an actual place where the lost are tormented for eternity, how do you explain the words of Jesus? It's better to poke out your eyes, better to cut off your hand, than to be cast into hell. Does your friend deceive and scare you? Once we have an understanding of the anchor, which is the law of God, we can then start to understand the righteousness or the doctrine of holiness of God. Perfect righteousness. One cannot understand these concepts without understanding where the landmarks are. Landmarks are made to guide us, to set our limits, and that's the law of God. Jesus exhorted people to take up their cross and deny themselves. He told them to count the cost. He did this because of the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the demands of the law, the punishment of disobedience, and the eternal consequences of evil and wrongdoing. Our evangelism is superficial because our concept of holiness is superficial. We reason as did the scribes and Pharisees, that we're okay with God if we just haven't done certain things like adultery and murder. That rationalization and self-satisfaction is the antithesis of holiness because holiness is a matter of the heart. We must not only not commit, we must not covet. Most importantly, the doctrine of sin enables us to realize the greatness of God's love for us. Our purpose is to love and worship God as the apostles did. When we understand what sin really is in the sight of God and that nevertheless he did not spare his own son, we will start to understand his amazing love for us. The most concise statement I've ever heard about sin is that God and sin are utterly incompatible. Therefore, sin and of necessity leads to hell. We should all be thankful that Another who is spotless, perfectly holy, has taken the sin, all of our sins, upon himself. He's washed us in his precious blood, and he's given us his own nature as a free gift. That's what I didn't put on your, our, our, your sheet, and I should have. That's the doctrine of redemption. The most often quoted and misunderstood passage in the Bible, I think, is probably found in Matthew 7 where it says, judge not so that you are not judged. That has been interpreted largely as telling us we are never to tell anyone they are wrong. However, 12 verses later, Jesus said that we are to go through the narrow gate, therefore judging. There are certain things as a broad gate. In John 15, Jesus says, the world hated me before it hated you. Why? Because he judged sin and he spoke the truth. 
John the Baptist lost his head because he judged Herod's sin. Yet in Matthew 11, Jesus himself said that no one has risen who is greater than John the Baptist. Judge not does not mean we don't stand for truth. In John 3, uh, it says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might through him be saved. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Jesus told the truth, but he did not condemn the world. What does Jesus mean when he says, judge not? He means after you tell the truth of the gospel, you don't reject that person as a sinner. All sinners are made in the image of God, and Christ died for all, including adulterers, whether in actuality or in the heart, including gays. Matthew 7, 2 says, don't be a hypocrite. And then it goes into that message about not looking at the splinter in your brother's eye when you've got a log in your own. The seed of every sin is in every one of our hearts. If we are characterized by disgust over the sin of others, but not our own, we do not understand the gospel. I knew I was going to need help. Thank you. Killjoy. The Bible, I thought, was an index of forbidden activities the guidebook for crusty old concepts of sex and sexuality. Thankfully, I thought, we live in a more enlightened age. The sexual revolution liberated us all from the shackles of sexual boundaries. Then I started to think for myself. I started to notice, this is a deeply broken world. One in three teenage runaways will be lured into prostitution within 48 hours. Online child pornography is a $3 billion industry annually. Sex trafficking is a $10 billion industry in the U.S. And pornography is a $90 billion industry worldwide. Sure, sexual brokenness is hardly new. But it seems worse than ever. And it leaves broken lives and broken families behind. So I started asking myself, if the world's vision of sex is so liberating, why are so many people enslaved? What if the Bible is telling us something we really need to hear? The Bible tells us that, in the beginning, God created a world to reflect His love. He crafted a world that's good and beautiful and capable of sustaining abundant life. He made man and woman for each other, flesh of flesh and bone of bone. He created marriage exclusively between the man and the woman so that they could reflect His relationship with His people. They fit together like pieces of a puzzle to find their fullness in Him through one another. And just as God's love overflowed into the creation of life, so does ours. In giving ourselves to one another, we reflect the image of God and share in the creation of life. So it was in the beginning, a beautiful design and very good. But in this garden of delight, sin came like a worm coiled in the fruit. We pursued our own will rather than His. We separated ourselves from God and each other, and we began to twist the gifts of God towards selfish ends. Today, we see what sin has wrought. Meant for giving, sex has become a means of taking. Meant to be an act of honoring and love, sex has become an act of violence and power. What was meant for sealing lifelong unions is now stolen and one night stands. We were sold a false bill of goods. When detached from its sacred purpose, sex becomes not enlightening, but empty. Not self-actualizing, but self-destructive. Sex becomes a marketplace where we are all the products on sale. 
From child pornography, sex trafficking, and date rape to the middle-aged man addicted to pornography, the single mother with children from many men, the boy who suffered sexual abuse, or the girl who starves herself to be like the models in the magazines. This is not because sex is bad. It's because something so powerful and good has been made to serve ends so superficial and selfish. Yet there is hope found in the gospel. In the brief history of sex, the final chapter has not been written. God loves to redeem, and he's doing so through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We uphold God's design for sexuality because in it there is true freedom and fulfillment. We can help to heal the people and rebuild the culture that sin destroyed. It will not be easy. The world defends its idols and mocks those who won't join in their worship. But we face the mockery because we want the best for our friends and families. Today the church strives for a world where sex is life-giving again. Deployed in its intended context to bind men and women to one another, to seal their covenant, to create life, and to craft a home where children can be nurtured. We speak the truth because that's what love does. And the truth is this. Sex is better. Sex is more when it serves its sacred purpose. Cherishing and upholding sex as an instrument of love and life frees us from the shackles of brokenness to display God's grand design. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give all praises to you. Thank you for your gifts. The gift of sexual intimacy, the gift of marriage, the gift of singleness. Father, we pray that you would continue to work in each and every one of our hearts and give us a heart that seeks after you and that seeks purity and seeks to desire to be a witness, salt and light in this world. I pray, Lord, that you would walk with each one of us today and help us to clean out those dirty corners and remain pure and seek your best in every single relationship that we have and keep our thoughts on you. Thank you, Father for the power that you give us through your Holy Spirit to do this. Help us to claim that power. We give you all praise and all glory in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.